Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 479th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Mr. Talby Edmondson, adjunct professor of history, religion, and culture at Virginia Tech University, who is going to talk to us about the campus Confederate legacy we're not talking about. Joining us with the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. To begin with, we'd like to welcome our guests to the show. Welcome to ROI, Talby. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is truly a pleasure. We call the first segment of the show Fadruk Tanaran, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information of college fraternities and how some of them have ties to Confederate legacies? Yeah, no problem. So there's there's really a handful, and for my research, it really picks up in the, the post-Civil War era. So from 1865 to about 1875 or 1873, really, you see the formation of a handful of fraternities that had direct ties you know, to not just the Confederacy, but they were actively enrolling you know, people that had served in the Confederate Army. And in a lot of ways, these fraternities served as social clubs for those you know, for those people that had a common background, and they really adopted some of the, the, the common ideologies that, you know, were, were emerging to explain the Civil War and the conflict and the sectional tensions, and really kind of built themselves around that. Um, they weren't unique in this. I mean, this was a society-wide, you know, kind of Southern, Southern kind of nationalism building, this kind of community building in which, you know, you've probably heard recently, especially since 2020, with the uh, the civil rights uprising in response to the murder of George Floyd, um, about the lost cause ideology or the lost cause of the Confederacy mythology. And for a lot of those former Confederates and their, you know, their children or people that they knew, white Southerners more generally, you know, became pretty convicted in that in the post-war period. And that keeps going well into the 20th century. And certainly today, we still have a lot of the legacies left from those. And some of the ideas are still pretty pertinent and have an effect on our, our politics. You know, and it's not just um, campus fraternities that are those legacies. I mean, think of, you know, the Confederate monuments that are being removed here in Virginia. The Lee statue on Monument Avenue in Richmond was taken down recently um, to much you know, much news um, to films like Gone with the Wind or The Birth of a Nation. You know, these these legacies are there and these fraternities and Greek-like organizations are a lesser known part of that. Okay, could you give our listeners kind of a, a history of this? Of course, Civil War ends um, 1865. How quickly did these um, institutions, the fraternities and others, start um, uniting to sit there and prophesize their their cause and their their uh, beliefs uh i mean pretty much immediately um there were former confederates that understood you know the the importance of controlling how the civil war and the sectional tensions and the understanding of slavery were going to be understood they knew that they if they were going to resist reconstruction and resist right black citizenship and african-americans being full citizens and having you know the franchise being able to vote um, and, you know, free from bondage, um, if they were going to resist that reality, they knew that they needed some form of, of ideological justifications. And these popped up in uh, historical societies like the Southern Historical Society, and it was also kind of the basis, really, for the organization of, more famously, the Ku Klux Klan or Confederate gun clubs, 
Um, but, you know, with fraternities, I mean, the, the biggest and the one that I speak about mostly in my article is the Kappa Alpha Order. Um, they were founded in December of 1865. So, I mean, that's just mere months after Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse in April. Um, so really, the emergence happens pretty fast. Um, it doesn't just start with one person. Um, it varies by place, you know, and as it develops, it kind of takes on new features. Um, but the uh, the impetus for it, um, resisting Reconstruction and resisting, you know, civil rights for African-Americans was something pretty well understood by these organizations and the people that were that were forming them, you know, broadly speaking. OK, could you give our listeners kind of a background check? Um, you've said right off the bat at the end of 1865, you had these colleges and their fraternities pretty much going right almost nearly instantly. A college student that was going to uh, a state school at the end of the Civil War, uh, what was their economic status? Um, what was their background? Because you would think many of them might have been possibly fighting in the Civil War, and yet they were at, in, at these institutions. So what was the economic and social makeup of these people who formed these organizations? Um, by and large, I mean, it was it was middle to upper class. Um, you're right that many of them had fought in the war. I mean, one of the realities of the Civil War is that it was fought by, you know, teenagers and, and people that we might even consider children in some cases um, or 20 low 20 year olds. And, and they would, you know, in the in the post-war period, go to college um, and some institutions, you know, would recruit them places like Washington College, which is now Washington and Lee or uh, the University of the South, Sewanee, um, you know, kind of became these. These, these Confederate strongholds, I guess, you know, they, they had famous faculty there that had served in the war, you know, at, at, at Washington College. That was Robert E. Lee himself, who was the president. And, you know, to, to kind of answer that more straightforwardly, a lot of the, the, the socioeconomic background would have been of some form of means, you know, for, for most of them. They would have been white, um, uh, you know, pretty much uniformly and you know, for them, university was seen as, you know, a status symbol in and of itself. And it, it was seen as a, you know, kind of a white gentlemanly status. So that is why they, they occupied those places and they were looking for exemplars, people that, you know, were probably officers in the Confederate Army, you know, and that reality goes all the way up to like Washington College with Lee. Okay. So um, when you were talking about the first fraternity that kind of, you know, cut the mold for it. Um, what was uh, some of their bylaws or their foundation of charter? I mean, I'm sure that as you're saying, the core was keeping the, the, um, the Confederacy mentality alive, but these institutions do establish charters. Did they have any special language or was this pretty basic and then it grew with time or? Yeah. Uh, you know, for the, you know, for the Kappa Alpha order, a lot of this kind of you know, fluctuated around the idea of chivalry that was in their charter. They saw themselves as kind of these white, manly exemplars of, of masculinity and, and gentlemanhood, you know, which is a loaded term at the time in the late 19th century. You know, it would have been seen and connected, you know, to white men in particular, and African-American men would have seen, been seen as antithetical to that. And, you know, in their charters and in this language, they talk a lot about gentlemanhood and uh, knighthood and chivalry, and they also speak about protecting, right, the white womanhood, you know, uh, of the of the southern states. And this kind of links up really well with the lost cause mythology. Actually, it's central to it, you know, that organizations of former Confederates like the Ku Klux Klan needed to defend 
uh, not just white womanhood, but white bloodlines in order to resist right reconstruction and the imposition of, of African-American civil rights. Um, so for the Kappa Alpha Orders Charter, that was pretty straightforward. And they actually said, you know, blatantly that they were protecting white womanhood. Okay. You know, today you don't see that. But in 1865, right, you know, that was that was how they were writing. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI and KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. If you are wondering how to find out where locals love to go, there's a website called localsloveus.com. Or you can pick up a Locals Love Us guide around town as well. Localsloveus.com. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Mr. Talby Edmondson, adjunct professor of history, religion, and culture at Virginia Tech University. And we're talking about an article that he wrote, The Campus Confederate Legacy We're Not Talking About. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. Rick, why don't you start us off? Okay, John. Uh, Talby, the, uh, curious about the, the initial organization of a fraternity that are embracing this this gentlemanly uh, gentlemanhood, I suppose, is what you call it. How, uh, first of all, what were, what was the objective of this this gathering of college students, and and how quickly did this model spread throughout uh, southern colleges and universities? The objective, um, I, you know, if if you look at the their 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 kind of central handbook is what they would call it today, but it was really, you know, not just in their charter, but kind of the, I guess, you know, uh, so to speak, a, a bible of the Kappa Alpha Order. You know, in the in the late 19th century, they were trying to train and teach young men. Um, you know, how to be the kind of exemplars of, of white chivalric virtue and to, you know, also be exemplars of this very white Christian, you know, organization. They did. They were kind of embedded in Christianity as well, saw themselves as such. And they wanted to, and this is, you know, again, kind of using a, a paraphrase of their own language, you know, use role models, people like Robert E. Lee, to emulate and then, you know, take positions in universities or in government or in business and, you know, represent the white South itself, its protection of white womanhood, you know, and these ideals of resisting Reconstruction, right? You know, seeing the, the, the white Christian male body politic of the South, you know, also being the protectors of that region, right? So they, they saw themselves and in the early, or sorry, in the late 19th, century, in the early 20th century, there was a lot of writing and a lot of discussion within that organization that they were related to or shared a kinship with the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, they said, again, paraphrasing, you know, their actual writings here, um, you know, that they were kind of like a, a separate head of the same, you know, monster or beast or a separate arm of the same body. They shared, you know, they shared goals. They share, They shared um, an organizational capacity, but where the Ku Klux Klan was violent and terroristic, terroristic, um, you know, the Kappa Alpha Order would have been, you know, the more reserved and elite 
and gentlemanly representative, you know, within within the the Southern society itself and its institutions. Jay, so since we've kind of moved from the the sort of mid to to late eighteen hundreds into the nineteen hundreds, as as time goes by. What's the evolution of this order? You talked about how the language changed over time. How does this order sort? How do the these? And I assume there's more than one. That's maybe the most famous order uh, fraternity. But I assume there are more than one chap, more than one variety here yeah. that that we don't have just a single. So how do these these fraternities sort of reinvent themselves over time in order to maintain the message that they were trying to maintain and in order to recruit the folks that they were hoping to recruit? Yeah, really good question. Um, you know, they, they, they certainly, they chartered more, more, more organizations at, at new universities and they grew pretty rapidly. Um, it, uh, for the Kappa Alpha Order, their, their first, you know, non-Southern chapter was at the University of California. And again, this is, is, is late 19th century. The, the year escapes me right now off the top of my head. And it was a big decision. They actually debated it. It was a, a tense issue, you know, in their proceedings. It was a tense, tense issue that played out, you know, with kind of opinions appearing in their in their journals and their historical writings and things like that and the way that they communicated. Uh, but ultimately, I think they knew that they needed to grow. Um, they knew that they needed to start, you know, new chapters at other places. They needed the enrollment. They needed the membership dues in order to keep going. And, you know, it was like the lost cause mythology wasn't something that was, I mean, it was resisted for sure, particularly amongst people that were alive during the war years, white uh, Northerners themselves, uh, Union veterans, U.S. Army veterans that fought in the Civil War, and in particular, you know, African-Americans. Um, so to keep, but for a lot of people, for a lot of white people from either a Southern background or that, you know, had some, some sympathy, right, for that, for that mythology, they were, they were kind of right for the picking, you know, to, uh, to spread these, spread these chapters and to um, open them up. I would also say that as the Lost Cause social movement developed, you know, they were kind of in lockstep with it. Um, so understanding their development is also kind of important to, or at least reflective of the development of the Lost Cause in general. So like you might have heard, especially since 2020, about the United Daughters of the Confederacy organization. They're, they're the group that was probably most responsible for the erection of the Confederate monuments, you know, across the United States. So with them emerging and this being, you know, uh, kind of elite white women, you know, in the organization, they partnered with Kappa Alpha or Sigma Nu or some of these other organizations. And they, they worked together on, on, you know, some objectives like putting in Confederate monuments or preserving historical sites like Lee's home, uh, in Virginia and other things, you know, of that nature, um, but promoting, right, this education in pro-Confederate or, you know, kind of neo-Confederate lost cause, you know, tradition. Um, they, they, you know, where the UDC was authoring textbooks to send out to schools, you know, negating the role of slavery and white supremacy in the, in the Civil War and the sectional tensions from the South, um, you know, and the Kappa Alpha Order Sigma Nu, they were adopting these, they were, they were, they were operating with them and helping, right, to promote these same ideas and also some of the same materials that organizations like the Southern Historical Society or the United Dollars of the Confederacy were also pursuing. So really they kind of, you know, they, they develop alongside the, the lost cost social movement more generally. All right. Well, these uh, frat fraternity 
lads uh, graduate, um, form businesses throughout the nation. Uh, are there have there been any uh, banks or financial institutions that over the decades um, backed, supported, and even enhanced uh, these uh, fraternities and their uh, messages across the nation? Um, you know, that's a good question. Banks, uh, I'm not really sure of. There were certainly a lot of politicians that did. Many of them were uh, alumni. Um, so you had people in positions of power, people that were um, – you know, uh, uh, looking to increase their own status and their own political viability. Maybe they had joined the, the Ku Klux Klan. This would have been in the 1910s and the 1920s. And those people absolutely kept promoting, right, the, uh, the Kappa Alpha Order and other organizations like them. Um, you know, one of the most famous people that helped promote this was actually, um, and not to move us even further down the timeline, but, you know, mid 20th century, it was J. Edgar Hoover, who's probably the most famous, at least today. Uh, of the alumni, and he was actively engaged. He went to George Washington University. You know, he helped them purchase a, uh, a fraternity house at George Washington University, was there, um, had FBI agents and, you know, government contacts, you know, kind of at the house so people that were in the fraternity, you know, could interact with them, network, make connections. Um, so it was really kind of the elite status of a lot of the people you know, that uh, uh, were alumni and then would go back and still remain active in the organization. Um, from banks, I mean, they could secure loans and things just like anyone else. Uh, but there were prominent businessmen who, you know, donated to uh, the organizations. There were celebrities who, you know, were kind of, you know, were on the national lecture circuit or they were, were well-known preachers at the time. They would have been active in the organization throughout their life, you know, as well. Okay, Rick. Yeah, Talby, I was wondering, uh, after the Civil War, there were uh, constitutional amendments that were passed that provided citizenship and uh, rights and responsibilities to the uh, previous slaves. Was there any legal counterbalance or uh, economic counterbalance in the South against this uh, uh, rising, uh, well, uh, not only these fraternities, but also like the Ku Klux Klan and other uh, elements in society that were trying to uh, re-embrace the antebellum South. Yeah, um, you know, for for one, there was the the Republican Party was was active, you know, in the South. So was the federal government, um, you know, stationing federal troops in the South to 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 you know, fight back against the Ku Klux Klan and some of the paramilitary organizations, you know, that were being created of, of former Confederates that were terrorizing African-Americans, you know, suppressing their, their voting rights, suppressing their ability to move around their communities, you know, and Southern state legislators, Southern Democratic state legislatures, you know, that were passing laws in particular, and, you know, kind of first in 1865, um, after the 13th Amendment is the passed and slavery is, is outlawed, the you know southern states passed you know a series of what we what we call the black codes which were um really an attempt to return african americans the freedmen um you know former formerly enslaved now emancipated back to uh conditions as close to slavery as possible right and these these black codes forbade uh things like you know um large scale things like interracial marriage but also they prevented them from from being able to leave um, certain communities setting curfews, you know, restricting their movement, 
they passed vagrancy law. So if someone was, you know, unemployed or this could also be abused, you know, they could be then arrested um, and then leased out into the kind of the, the prison, the prison lease system um, for labor on on plantations, not as sharecroppers, but as, you know, but as prisoners. Um, so that was really the the first movement there. But there was pushback to that, certainly. The federal government tried. I mean, they passed the Ku Klux, the, the Grant administration passed the Ku Klux Klan Act. They prosecuted a lot of Klan members. It was limited in its in its success, but it was uh, it was an important an important movement. Um, there were also, you know, white Southerners who, you know, would work with the Republican Party kind of in in fusionist political um, cooperation. They would create these fusionist government or fusionist political parties where some of them were actually former Confederates. But they would see that the 13th and 14th Amendment had, you know, been ratified, come into reality. So if they were moving forward, they probably needed to get on board with it. And, you know, things could still be quite racist among those organizations, but they broadly accepted, you know, African-American freedom and, you know, rights. And some of them even promoted the 15th Amendment and the, the right to the franchise themselves. So there was some pushback. Um, you know, the, the white South was never uniform. Uh, but there certainly was a significant number, you know, who are going to organize in resistance, right, to these changes that are coming about in Reconstruction. Yep. Jay. Um, so I'd kind of like to move the the uh, timeline forward again and talk really about uh, how these um, organizations functioned post-civil rights movement. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm thinking about how do you transform yourself so that you can um, maintain appearances and and do the kind of outreach work that you're trying to do. How does the message change, if at all? Do they alter or modify sort of the goals based on what is what's going on within the country? Um, and then, sort of as a last question, um, what kind of pushback ultimately happened as uh, post civil rights? We had activism started to move more into less those basic enfranchisements, but but more into other areas of social injustice? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, they, I, I would say that these organizations do follow along kind of with the trajectory uh, of, of, you know, U.S. social history in the, the 19th and 20th centuries at large. So for the Kappa Alpha Order during the Civil Rights Movement, I mean, in the post-Brown v. Board uh, ruling, right, this, this, this Supreme Court ruling that integrate schools. It says that it's illegal to, to segregate, you know, public institutions. Um, you know, some of the chapters, like at the University of Georgia, they're, they're going to fly the Confederate flag, you know, in defiance of that ruling. They actually, I think, at the University of Georgia, they fly it at half-mast after, mast after the, uh, uh, the, Brown v, the Brown v. Board ruling comes down. Um, some of the other ones, like Sigma Nu, um, one of their prominent members, and he was an administrator, was Trent Lott, who's going to be the you know future kind of Speaker of the House, um, a, a Republican. He's going to lead a successful temporarily campaign to you know keep his fraternities from from integrating and fraternities and sororities at large, kind of seen as these organizations that you know had certain privileges. They were they were typically organizations for elites. They were very elitist. Right. Um, that was that was something in the 20th century. And even today that, you know, they have tried to shed and downplay. But typically, you know, uh, some prominent people come from them um, and they're supported by other prominent people. So um, 
in the post-civil rights era, a lot of them start still trying to privilege, you know, white elite memberships, and they're just very restrictive behind the scenes on who they'll allow to rush, who they'll allow to join, and really they just kind of keep reproducing this this white elite demographic uh, above, um, about, you know, within them. Um, recently, you know, since 2020, that is something in this kind of anti-Greek life movement, which was another development you know, from, uh, you know, from the civil rights uprising following George Floyd's murder, um, you know, that's what a lot of people rejected. Even some members that were already in those organizations, you know, took stands against them, said that they needed to diversify, allow people from different backgrounds, you know, an equal opportunity to be members, and they needed to change. Some of those fraternities still resist that now. They say that it never happened, or they say that they've already fixed the problems and, and, that, they've, and that they've moved on. But pretty much from the 1960s into the 2010s and 20s, I mean, you, you kind of saw these, you know, these, these majority white elite organizations maintain that in one capacity or another. And certainly over time, you know, as they get a reputation for that, like the Kappa Alpha Order is just not getting that many you know, African-American or Hispanic, you know, uh, inductees at all. I mean, there are a couple. I mean, some, there are even chapters that are that are more diverse and, and have, you know, I would call them diverse, right? But um, overall, you know, in their, their total membership, it's, it's really not a large amount. Okay. Uh, it's customary to give our guests the last word on the show. So, Talby, in, in about two minutes, um, why do you think knowing about the Confederate mm-hmm. ties to current fraternities is relevant in today's world? Well, it's deeply political. It's deeply politically relevant um, to understand the lost cause social movement, to understand the ideologies that it created. They ultimately won the day, um, I should say, ideologically. Um, from those organizations, from the Kappa Alpha Order to other fraternities to the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, all the way up to you know Thomas Dixon Jr., who's probably the most famous, or not sorry, not the most famous. I would say that's Jagger Hoover, but the the most influential. Right. He wrote The Klansman. It's going to be the basis for the birth of the nation. Um, Really, with that movie, um, and he was an alumni of Kappa Alpha Order, said that, you know, he was, you know, um, (laughs) modeling uh, his version of the Klan in in his novels that would become the birth of the nation after his fraternity. Um, You know, it's, you know, it's going to become the popular understanding, really, of Civil War history. And that has a lot of deeply political ramifications because of the Ku Klux Klan and the Kappa Alpha Order saved the South, right, you know, from from racial degeneration, as they claimed, keeping African-Americans from having civil rights, ushering in this this era of apartheid under Jim Crow. Um, If you accept that, then you also accept, right, that African-American rights or freedom was always kind of antithetical to, you know, the, the civilization that they were trying to build in the South, the white South itself. So, um, with adopting these mythologies that became very ingrained, um, we still see them deployed and used in the basis of ideologies that we still see to keep, right, you know, uh, racial inequalities around today as well. It's why whenever somebody proposes changing a name at a university, right, away from a, a slaveholder or a confederate or taking down a monument, you still see this kind of immense pushback and this call for it being, you know, this this, this great historical legacy and that we still need to respect those Confederates because they were great Americans and so on and so forth. So if you can call Confederates and slaveholders great Americans, what does that imply or what does that mean for, right, you know, the uh, uh, your vision of what the nation should be, okay. I guess I should say. 
Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 479th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Mr. Talby Edmondson, adjunct professor of religion and culture and history at Virginia Tech University, who talked to us about the campus confederate's uh, legacy we're not talking about. The History Bus for today's show were Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.